Everybody. Welcome to 20Q, 20 Questions with Interesting People, where we learn the origin stories of everyday superheroes in the LGBT community and friends. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and our guest this time is Andrina Leon. Andrina is an out and proud black working class lesbian inspirational speaker and poet. She writes and performs poetry to come to terms and speak about her personal experience with homelessness, mental health, childhood sexual abuse, and many other challenges she has faced in her life. By speaking her truth, she hopes to inspire and empower others. In January 2015, Andrina founded Poetry LGBT Open Mic Night. Poetry LGBT is a warm and welcoming space for the LGBT plus community to come together to share their experiences and creativity through poetry and spoken word. Andrina recently started Adult Survivors Open Mic for survivors of abuse to share their story through poetry. Andrina delivers writing workshops online and in person, and has performed her poetry at various community-led events, labor party events, and for local authorities such as London Borough Hackney during LGBT History Month, the Greater London Authority and International Women's Day events, and has had her work published in the anthology Sister from Team Angelica in 2018. Her debut poetry collection, Chard, has also been published by Team Angelica in October of 2020. In 2018, she was one of Stonewall's Black History Month role models. In 2020, she has been shortlisted for a Positive LGBT Role Model National Diversity Award. Chard is available to purchase on Amazon and Etsy. Hi, Andrina. How are you doing today? Hi, Tim. Hi, thank you. Well, we're going to start with our first question, as always. A little bit about your background. Where are you originally from and what was it like? So I am 39 years old. I was born in London. And when I was one years old, uh, one year old, I went to, my mom sent me to live in Jamaica with my grandparents. So I grew up in Jamaica until the age of seven when I returned to the UK to reunite and live with my mum. In London. Wow. So you do you, all your formative years were in Jamaica. Yeah. And it was really exciting because, you know, I feel like my creativity and just like my humbleness and all of that comes from growing up in the country part of Jamaica where um, many people didn't have anything we had to be resourceful and make our own toys and create our own enjoyment so I think that experience has has helped make me the person I am today really that's interesting you know I know somebody who uh grew up in Cuba and he was telling me the very similar story uh for toys and for parts on these cars that, that still drive around beautifully, they actually have to find a piece of metal and, and, and carve out the parts or, or make their own toys because they, uh, they didn't have uh, uh, anything. There wasn't any stores and nothing was being manufactured for, for them. So they had to figure out a way to do it for themselves. So this, that does make you uh, quite resourceful. And you look at things very differently, don't you? Yeah, definitely. I appreciate everything I have 
And I tend to keep things for a really long time. You know, I'm not one of those people who needs to always buy new clothes or buy new electronics or, you know, every time something new comes out, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, what is that? I'm interested in that, you know, um, that's not me at all. And I think that's from my past experience of growing up, having to be resourceful and make things and appreciate what we have. And my grandparents are like that as well. They're not, they're not the type of people that are into credit or anything like that. So I live within my means. Uh, like I was saying, if, if I don't need the latest TV, do you know what I mean? I could have a TV for 20 years, you know, um, or anything, not just a TV. It could be anything. I could have the things that I have, I tend to look after. And if it's, if it's broken, I'll try and fix it before I replace it. And I think that comes from those earlier years, my upbringing. I completely understand. My mother was one of 11 children born into poverty in Dublin, Ireland. And uh, her father died when she was six. Uh, a sister uh, and three brothers passed away uh, in, during their youth or the young adulthood. And she was sent to live with the uh, infamous Magdalene sisters. Seeing as you have this extraordinary uh, background, uh, what would you say is uh, the life experience that had the greatest impact on you? Wow, the life experience that had the greatest impact on me. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I've had loads of uh, life experiences, both positive and negative ones. Um, I could start on a positive one, I guess. One life experience is growing up with my mom who was a single parent um she she was quite resourceful as well and she she played both the mother and father roles in our in our household uh, when we were, when we came back to london and lived in london with her and i just saw how um she was able to fix things and do things and uh if a light bulb needs changing she would change it if something needs fixing she'll do it so I guess that's had an impact on me because I've been able to just try and do things myself I found it difficult to ask for help um a lot of the time I'm actually learning that now but I'm just so um I'm just so good at problem solving things that need doing, even if it's like manual labor, I'm not shy of manual labor from doing anything with my hands or getting stuck into something. So I think that's been, um, that's had a massive impact on me. I'm not one of those people that need other people to do stuff. You know, I'm quite, good at doing things by myself okay very good. and I, and I think I learned that from seeing how independent she was or is because she's still alive we've had our differences we have a lot of issues our mother and daughter relationship is very strained um however I 
when you asked that question, that was the first um, image that popped into my head, like how resilient and strong and independent my mom is. I, uh, I interviewed Even though we're not speaking now. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I understand that. Um, uh, I've, I've had, you know, most of the people who have been on the show have been uh, members of the community. I've had um, uh, a, a uh, transitioning um, uh, former uh, U.S. military person who uh, was, uh, he was uh, in a lot of trouble and using uh, drugs and his parents kicked him out. Went to live with his aunt. He spent a month there, and she straightened him out. Joined uh, the military. Was in the, was in, was in Afghanistan for four years. Came back. I, I helped him get a uh, an internship at NBC, and uh, then he got his degree. Then he got his graduate degree. Transitioned. Um, went from male to female, uh, and uh, nobody uh, batted an eye when he said he was transitioning. Uh, but then seven months later, she's told people she was vegan and they all freaked out on her. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had that and I've had other people tell me stories. One one gentleman was the name. His name is Ted Santos. He is uh, the chairman of ex-CEOs. And what they do is they're retired CEOs who give uh, advice, keep themselves busy and give advice. And he told me the story when he was about five years old. He was in the car with his mother. And uh, with his brother, his mother, and the, the car had an accident, went off the road. And his mother, because she just had the survival instinct, ran about a mile with two broken legs to get help. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and other people told me, one, one fellow, his name is Matt Erickson, who uh, he just kept on hitting me with, with, with one thing after another. He, uh, he, he had a degree in theater. He was from uh, upstate New York near, was near the Canadian border. And uh, his mother became ill and uh, his father had left. There was no father. And uh, he had to take leave from his job. Uh, finances crater, mother died. He became addicted to meth. He lost his job. He lost where he was living, became homeless, slept in his car. Then he went as, found his way into public housing. Then he got a job and he became the first out uh, person to work this at this, this company, which they had to have him read a disclaimer uh, before being on the show because of the, they didn't want to have it be legally obligated to anything he may have said. He became, uh, uh, he found out that uh, he was a, a, a HIV positive and he's living his life and you go, wow. Jesus, Jesus, this. And I, I'm just so lucky. I'm just so fortunate. You know, it's relatively... Uh, minor compared to other people, even though I've had my own issues with uh, sexual abuse, but that was at the hands of other other boys at school. But uh, that was not uh, nothing. Uh, the way other people tell me the story, so it's 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 amazing. You, you can you, everybody has a story, and you have you started off with a great one. Um, so since you you're doing so well with uh, LGBT poetry, uh, what would you say to anyone? interested in an aspect of your experience, meaning if someone wanted to explore an idea or prospective opportunity based on what you can tell them, what would be the main thing to encourage and or discourage them? When I started Poetry LGBT in 2015, I, I had never done it before. I'd never, 
hosted an event before. I'd never organized an event before. Um, and I just did it. I did a little bit of research and just did it. And it turned out to be a really successful event. We had 125 people turn up at the event. And I was really proud of it. I was like, wow, this is awesome. Um, so the advice that I would give to anybody if they want to try something is to just try it, you know, just try it, do it. It doesn't matter if you think you're not going to be good enough or if you think you can't do it or whatever, whatever those negative sort of like voices in your head is or the comments from anybody else, ignore those and do it anyway, because what you'll probably find is that you'll learn from it. And if you want to do it again, you'll do it again and you may learn to do things differently. You know, um, I'd, so I'd say the, the advice I would give to anybody wanting to try and attempt something with very little experience, just try it anyway and see what's the worst that can happen. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, that's most of the things I've ever done in my life, uh, I, I either got laughed at or uh, got the, the, the stink eye because I, I, I was doing something that it didn't mesh with what people perceived of me. And I did it anyway, and I just forged through. And my attitude was, what is the worst that could happen? You're just going to learn a little bit more every time you do anything anyway. And you learn what works and what doesn't. And then if you uh, have any aptitude uh, at all, someone somewhere is going to tap you on the shoulder and give you a hint just to make a little life a little bit easier, put you in a better direction. And it, it just works out that way. But, you know, it's the practice makes perfect and the fact that you are applying yourself. Uh, I do. I do. I do believe that for sure. So, yeah, so and you just and you just make tweaks along the way and you learn things along the way. I think, you know, loads of people say that their biggest regret is not having done something that they wanted to do before in their life. And that's usually because somebody else said to them they couldn't do it or they shouldn't do it or anything like that. And I just think that um, we do have so many sort of negative self-beliefs and negativity from other people that it does it does get in the way. But I think if you really want to try something new, just do it. Yes, and I absolutely believe that most of the time, what you what you're seeing is the projection of other people's insecurity. You know, yeah. and and you can't go by that. That's just no way to go through any, anything. And you can see that in the in the way they conduct themselves. So it should be something. You know, we learn that, but we I think it galvanizes you when you realize. No, I can do this, or I can do it to whatever degree I can, and then I'm just going to keep on building on it. You know? Yeah, um, exactly. So, what would you say is your most noteworthy achievement? I think, you know, my most noteworthy achievement to date is my daughter, Renee. She's 18 years old, mm. and I think she's my biggest achievement because my journey with childhood sexual abuse and homelessness and all the issues that I've been through, all the problems that I've had, I've still managed to bring up a child who is respectful, she's beautiful, she's creative, she's articulate, she's all of those things. Um, 
that any mother would want their daughter to be. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, she wasn't like me. When I was a child, um, a teenager, I started smoking at 13. Like, I was partying and sneaking out of the house. I was quite promiscuous. I was all of those things. And and Renee is nothing like that. Renee is nothing like I was when I was um, young. And when I reflected on it, I recognised that she didn't have the problems that I had growing up. Do you know what I mean? She, I had quite deep uh, issues um, as a, ro- a result as a result of um, being sexually abused. So I forgive myself for how I was when I was a teenager and how I behaved, because any teenager would have behaved in a in a really terrible way, having gone through all of the things that I've been through. So growing her up and seeing her grow and develop into a young woman, now she's 18, I would say she's my biggest achievement. And she's absolutely nothing like I was when I was growing up. That's spectacular. That's great. You see, I can see the, the look of pride. You see this beautiful look on your face talking about yeah. you. That's she's not perfect. She's not perfect by um, any stretch of the imagination. No one's perfect. But... When I compare her, well, she's had a different life to mine, to be honest. I've protected her and done the best I can for her for 18 years, you know. So, yeah, she's done well. So I say she's my biggest achievement. Well, that's fantastic. Um, um, I have uh, two brothers and three sisters. We're all married. And I have seven nieces and nephews and 12 grand nieces and nephews, which I still can't believe. That's amazing. The youngest one is four months old and the oldest one is 12. And I look at how uh, my nephews and nieces have grown into adults and parents. And I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly marvel at what, what a job they've done. You know, they were, they were able to do and how well, uh, how, what nice, uh, fine people uh, they, they've grown into, which, uh, you know, you don't expect them to be adults in your mind. And then you see them as, as adults and you see them as parents and you just go, hmm. you know, I remember you when you were a little kid and I didn't, I never expected you to grow up, let alone, you know, to, to grow to such a, a good person. And uh, it's something else when you see them and uh, it's, it's a very rewarding thing, you know. If you, if you, th- you felt that you contributed anything to helping them be that person, uh, it's uh, it's it's very satisfying. It's a very rewarding thing, and and I, and I see them doing it with their kids, and and I just wow, look at you, you know, you, you're doing great, you know. So it's 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 uh, a lot harder uh, in your personal experience, and it's a lot easier to appreciate other people. Uh, uh, who, who do well? Because I had, you know, um, you know, I think most, I think most people, LGBT people, uh, there, we have a much higher degree of uh, sexual abuse and substance abuse. Uh, I've done a pod or two about uh, about this, and uh, because of trauma, uh, it, it, it's and and, it, and there was two different um, medical um, and psychiatric uh, organizations in America who track this. Um, where I think about 10% of the population of the, of this country, uh, has suffers from some sort of, um, substance abuse. And some of it is also tied to chronic pain, believe it or not. Uh, but, uh, uh 25 to 35% of the LGBT population. So 
triple plus of, of the, the straight population has experienced. And that a lot of that is directly attributed to uh, sexual abuse. Uh, you know, one in four women have been uh, sexually assaulted. And I think it's uh, one in seven or eight men or one in six men, myself included. Um, and uh, it's... Uh, Something that, especially growing up Catholic, uh, not having the ability to uh, go to anybody who would be receptive to your, your problems because, you know, they, it was, a, it was in a Catholic environment. So, of course, the first thing is that you, you're mistaken and then you're wrong and then you're blame, you know, they blame you. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's your fault you're using it as an excuse. Um, and, and anything to deflect because of the long history of, of abuse. So, um, yeah, I uh, I see that uh, so many people have to overcome these things. Uh, we didn't have support groups. I, I I've talked to people. I've done I've done one. Actually, Lee Lee liked one I did. My very first time going to a gay bar. That was 1979, and uh, I I was terrified. And there was no support groups. Now I've seen I've actually seen in bars uh, kids going to a gay bar for the first time with their parents. And were their parents waiting outside with them? And they go in. It's very tentative. And I, I, this is yeah, all the support. You have this embracing, loving support now, which we didn't have. You had to lie and hide and run. And the gay bars, uh, all the gay bars were uh, had a, some sort of blue or orange or yellow or red light overhead. And it was a, never a direct line of sight because people went into them tied. And now it's it's a completely different experience you know and people welcome with open arms and and uh, this is so affirmative and uh you have so many allies and uh, uh it's uh, i can see how how much different it is but it's got to be a fantastic experience to go through this now yeah, yeah. Well, we it's it's us and the people who came before us who have carved the way for young people to be more comfortable to be themselves and come out as gay now so it's a long history of people before coming out do you know what i mean that gives people now that freedom to be themselves there's still uh, a lot of work to do but i guess we, we do need to acknowledge all the work that's that's led to young people being able to freely express themselves in the way they do today. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've had to explain to people in work environments, uh, especially if I'm in, like in a meeting with another gay person, I'll, I'll, I make the gay joke, it, nothing sexual, but just I, as an identifier. And people say, you always got to do that. And I say, yes, I do. I have to, you have to be out. You have to out yourself all the time. But this isn't something you can just put up on a shelf and say once and everybody agrees with and you forget about it. This is who I am every day, and I have to tell everybody. It's a continual process. And there, there is uh, um, uh, a, a mentality amongst people. Now, I, I live in Chelsea, New York, which was the epicenter of gay life for many years. West Village, Chelsea, and then uh, Hell's Kitchen in New York. And Chelsea is coming back with more uh, younger gay men are moving here now again. And uh, there has been a, a source of consternation and anger from people of my generation and older when they speak to younger gay men who just take for granted the the the, uh, the ability to walk down the street holding hands or to not try to cover up 
you're a natural personality would try to put a mask on of, 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 of being butch or, or you, you, don't, you don't No one has to do that here. And uh, there's a gentleman, his name is Mike Diamond, who does uh, his video, uh, his video stuff on YouTube. And he's approached people at the Christopher Street Piers, which is the famous piers. And uh, this, this park is very is beautiful now. And in the old days, it was it was this rickety ramshackle thing, and, and there would be thousands of men there. And now he go there, and it's, a, and it's a public park enjoyed by people pushing strollers. And he, and he walked up to uh, uh, people. He did a man on the street. And you're standing on the shoulders of, of people who who sacrifice themselves for you, and uh, they, they don't know that it was actually real. They think it's some sort of some sort of didactic fiction. Like no, 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 this really really happened. People become a little bit. A little bit angry at them for not appreciating what these other fellows have done for them. In the '60s, uh, on Fire Island, which is you know gay heaven, uh, the police would routinely come on Sundays. The whole party, the idea of you know the tea party, uh, that was a, an old-fashioned idea that was used by gay people to avoid just to get around uh, not being able to serve liquor to homosexuals and a whole load of things that. Uh, uh, or the way we dance now, that's, that started because of the police would bust people if they if they danced with each other. So the way dance, all the frug and the, the, you know, all the stuff that people do now, that's all because of gay people not being allowed to touch each other. And when they did, they'd be arrested by the police and the police would chain them to each other. And they'd take their pictures and humiliate them. And then they would lose their jobs because it would be published in the newspaper. And none of these people seem to understand this. And it just, it's just... So confounding for so many older gay men who don't, you know, they've suffered through all this and they can't possibly understand why you haven't understood and embraced it. And a lot of a lot of young activists do. But these other guys so blithely just take it for granted that this is this didn't happen all by itself. You know, that's why it's good for history to be told, you know, for young people to connect with older people and to learn the history of how things were and how compared to how they are now. I think they, there's definitely um, a young people and older people divide. And I think young people need to, there needs to be more spaces for young people and older people to come together. Um, yeah. And, to, and- yeah, to appreciate the history and to have conversations about these things. I remember only last week I was watching, um, there's this YouTube channel where these older gay guys um, all talk about, have you seen it? Yeah, they- they, Five or six guys. Five or six guys, and they they talk about different things. And it's shocking when you read the comments. When you read the comments in the YouTube, like there's lots of young people that are there commenting, saying, you know, they didn't know that older gay men exist in the world you know they've never seen a older gay man before like i just think there's just a total disconnect yes um i have uh, a youtube channel and uh, i was lucky enough to um videotape the inside of one of the legendary leather bars probably the most famous leather bar in new york it was called the eagle and all the other Eagle bars, and the, those are all leather bars around the country. They're not affiliated with, with this one particular place. But the, the gentleman who owned it uh, just uh, got tired and wanted to retire. Uh, 
and he let me shoot the inside of it. And this was, I think, in 1998, 1999. And I couldn't put it up until about eight or nine, 12 years ago or something like that because YouTube didn't exist until 2005. So I put it up uh, this video and showing what this place was like. And that it, the neighborhood itself was, uh, was run down. It was the west side of Manhattan. It had all been uh, uh, shipping and, and cruise ships and boats. And then when uh, boats got bigger and people moved away, it just became dilapidated. It fell down. So gay people moved in to these crummy places to take them over. It was cheap and this is how they can identify and no one was bothering them. So this bar was, uh, it was a little bit old and, and, it, and it was, uh, you know, a lot of it was makeshift and they built around the makeshift and it became something, but it was not, not a glamorous place by, by any stretch. And I posted this video quite some time ago and every six weeks to two months, I'll get a comment from someone and I shake my head and I just like, <laughs> they're so dismissive and so nasty about things. I'm like, don't you, you can't understand. This is, this is all we had. This was the thing. This was the only thing that you could go to. It was an oasis. People needed to get away from their lives so they could identify and, and speak to each other, communicate and understand. And they just don't have any grasp of this. It doesn't, it doesn't, it can't, it doesn't fit into their worldview at all. So it's an amazing thing. And, and, and they're so bitter and, they're, they're so uh, cruel to about which I don't understand. You you haven't experienced this. You don't understand. You don't have any compassion or empathy with for, uh, for uh, other people. And it's great that you have a life that doesn't have to be so threatened. But you, <laughs> I, I don't understand why you why you just decide that you don't have to care about anybody else. And um, it, that's one of the big criticisms. And that's always been a criticism of every, every generation says that about the generation following them. It's just that it's, uh, it's, it's more glaringly noticeable because they, they're so entitled. And, it, and it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit irksome because uh, you're, you're not uh, showing me the due gratitude and respect to uh, people who've done this, who led the path for you. You know. Yeah, it's important to mention not all young people are like that, though. And there are still, you know, lots of countries in the world where being gay is punishable by death, you know. Yes. So, yeah, there are a lot of... I interact with poetry, LGBT. I interact with a lot of people of different ages. And, yeah, it's important to note that not all young people are like that. Tim, can I read my poem? It's called I Am Free. Please. Yeah, because our conversation just reminded me of um, what it was like in the 90s and when I came out. So, yes, it's from my book, Charred, A Survivor Speaks Her Truth to Inspire. Um, this poem's called I Am Free. I spent my teenage years listening to lyrics like Buju Bantan's Boom Bye Bye in a Batty Boy Head. What he's saying is that gay people should be shot in the head. Imagine that. Those lyrics were heard by millions. In those days, it never made me angry. In fact, I used to dance to it. I could name a few more. T.O.K., Elephant Man, Vibes Cartel. In the 90s, those tunes dominated the dance floor within my bedroom walls. In 1999, I married a man. Was I in denial? Threesome, anyone? Yes, me, him and she. I came out as a lesbian in 2003. Looking back, all the clues were there. It's just me that couldn't see. People knew I was gay before me. 
It must have been the way I looked at my friend's auntie or the way I dressed and rebelled by shaving my head. Or maybe because I rode a moped. The truth is, I chose not to see. I was too afraid to be true to me. People were too judgmental back then. I cared way too much about what people thought and said. I met a girl who took me to a gay club. Those homophobic tunes were played by gay DJs in those gay clubs. What a head fuck. People I knew said they liked the beat and ignored the lyrics. I'm not ex exactly sure when or why something changed, but there was uproar. Voodoo and other Bashman artists were banned. Us gays had taken a stand. Out with that shit. It was no longer acceptable to listen to it. I no longer had to listen to it. They say I'm an activist. It's been a process, all part of the journey. I am free to finally be who I'm meant to be, loving living this reality within the LGBTQ plus community. My dysfunctional and disjointed family may not be proud of me, but I'm able to maintain my sanity and not let them get the better of me mentally. I'm going to take a bow because I'm happy now. I'm free. So, yeah, that poem is called I Am Free. I read that. Chard. I wrote a I wrote a poem called Same Difference because because of the the experiences that I've had in the LGBT community. I felt compelled to write about it. It's called Same Difference. I'll just quickly read this poem. Stare at me, please. I like it. Check out my hair. It's the texture of rough cotton before it's relaxed. Stare at me, please. My brows are a few shades darker than yours. My lashes shade and protect my eyes as they do yours. Look into my eyes. Tear ducts in their corners where tears fall, stream and gush. Stare at me, please. I like it. Check out my nose as it's uncommonly smaller than yours. Check out my lips. They too were made to kiss and pout the occasional lipstick. Tell me if we don't breathe the same way as I take a gulp of air into my lungs and breathe out. <sighs> my neck, my arms, my elbows. This finger too awaits that special ring. My breasts, my back. Cut me some slack as you check out my fat. Now focus on my feet. They're more or less the same as yours. Ten toes, arched heel, heels and a callus or two. Me, you, they, her and him, please check out my skin. Sweet shea buttered melanin. Cut me deep and see if we don't bleed the same way. See if my blood goes from dark to red when it hits the bed. Stare at me, please. I like it. White, black, yellow, purple or blue. I stare at you too. Yes, there are so many similarities. Now you tell me if we're so different. Thank you. That was same difference from my poetry book, Chard, A Survivor Speaks Her Truth to Inspire. And it was, it was mainly aimed at a white audience. I would go around to different London events and perform that poem to a largely white audience so that they can look at themselves and look at me and actually realise that there are, there are similarities. We're not so different as human beings, you know? And as a community, I really champion unity within our community. 
It's really important. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the things that uh, I, I uh, see. A point of frustration for a lot of people is uh, it's not one day a year where you go around and uh, take your shirt off to march down Fifth Avenue and uh, wave and pretend, and then you go your own way to go get high and uh, play with each other. That's 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 not the point. This is just to let everybody know this is the, we're here to we're standing up. We're being counted. Yeah. You know? We're gay every day of the year. And we need to address the challenges that are happening within our community, the issues. Even with allies, uh, uh, I've had, and with, with, I mean, uh, the the best boss I ever had uh, is a great, great guy. Um, I'm still friends with him, and I haven't worked for him nine years, but uh, he's been good very good to me and, 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 and a great guy. And, uh, when I started to be involved with, uh, a lot of activism, uh, I would have conversations or discuss things, uh, with him and other people. And, uh, the gay calendar is just completely invisible to straight people. They don't know what our significant dates are. They don't know what Spirit Day is. They don't know what Stonewall really means. They don't know what uh, when is Gay Pride. And, and I would often get this question: Are oh, they doing that again this year? Like they do it again every year. When do they do that? They do that. It's the last Sunday of every June in New York. I think. I think because of capitalism and consumerism and things like that. I think lots of organizations are really paying attention to our gay calendar because they realize that they can capitalize off our events. They can, you know, design their merchandise around our pride colors. They can capitalize off uh, the pink pound, if you like. In the UK, we call it the pink pound. Um, We call it pink washing. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of organizations that... Um, jump on the bandwagon of LGBT culture and occasions to be able to profit and make money from it. And that as well is problematic because as soon as the pride event is over, all of those things that they, they, the merchandise that they came up with to sell then becomes really cheap or reduced or discounted in the shops. It's business. Yeah. So anyway. How many of those questions have we got through already? It feels like you've only asked me like five questions. <laughs> We've got loads to go. Well, the, actually, the, the next one is uh, the biggest personal challenge you have faced. Personal injury, a seemingly overwhelming task, a personal or professional goal, a difficult situation you had to overcome. What do you think it was? I I would say a transformational moment in my life is when I decided to quit smoking. I was 28 years old. I smoked 20 cigarettes a day and I didn't have any money. So any money that I did have went on cigarettes and, you know, I would reduce the amount of food I would consume to, to be able to buy cigarettes. Um, 
I always provided enough for my daughter, but I would often go without because I wanted to smoke. So when I quit smoking, that was a major transformation because I had started smoking when I was 13 and I quit when I was 28. Um, I realized that that hold that smoking had on me for 15 years, I was able to let that go. I was able to kick that habit. And when I did that, that sort of transformed me into knowing that anything is possible. That is when I realized I could achieve anything when I quit smoking. Okay. So good. I'd say uh, that was a transformational moment because once that, once I kicked that habit, I was able to then like set other goals and motivate myself to achieve more because that was, that was massive for me. Yeah, I remember smoking too. I was I was a very heavy smoker, and I, I, actually, I had walking pneumonia, and that made it a lot easier to quit. But uh, uh, yeah, it, it was a big moment in my life. I, I definitely see that. Yeah, and it's been eleven years, and I haven't touched a cigarette since. So it's yeah, and I've I keep a diary um, every year. I have a paper diary, um, and at the back of each each diary i made a list of all the achievements and accomplishments i've i've made that year and that started the year i stopped smoking so i've got 11 of these diaries now where i can look back at each of them and see what i accomplished that year that's so, just really cool so based on that and since you have so much to talk about and this experience what drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What drives me and what gets me up in the morning, I think, is my gratitude for life. Like, I actually love living. I love living. You know, I've got this quote where I say, I love living and living is what I love the most about life. And I feel so grateful to be here because when you think about it, like you can go deep with this conversation. Like when you think about how much egg and sperm is wasted, like when you think about it getting wasted in the world, like, like how comes I'm here? Like I've never really understood, never really understood like how some people get to be here and so many others don't. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, look how many eggs are released during period or sperm is released during sex. Do you know what I mean? Like, when yeah. you think about it, yeah. and, but then, like, I'm here, you're here, like, so many other billions of people are on the planet. It's almost like we're the chosen ones. I don't I know. Don't yeah. I don't know how to how to explain it, but I just think just thinking about life like that, I know that the circumstances of how I came to be here is not really pretty. Um, yeah, I was conceived in sort of like lies and deceit and um, affairs and all sorts. But the fact that I am here, what drives me to get up and do stuff is feeling privileged that. I actually have a life, like, like I exist in the world. 
So what can I do today? I think about, I always make my to-do list and I work on my to-do list and I'm like, okay, I don't always achieve my goals and I don't always tick off all of the things on the to-do list. Uh, I don't always tick off all of them, but it gives me satisfaction to know that I've got things to work towards or I've got people to see or people to speak to that, you know, I've got a contribution in this world. And now that I've been speaking my truth about abuse and helping other people to speak their truth about abuse, that drives me even more because I think, right, whose life can I impact today? And that's what drives me. That's, that's kind of cool. Um, so um, what's the first thing you want to come to people's minds when they think of you? Um, I want people to think of me as being warm and welcoming and accepting because I accept everybody I'm warm and welcoming in the spaces where I create you know for people to share and express themselves on these open mic events that I create that's the feedback that I get you know people say that it's very it's very warm and welcoming space and I I bring that energy so that's what I would like people to think of me that I'm warm and welcoming it's great I've had a lot of people uh, tell me so many different things. Uh, me, I I want people to think that I'm authentic. I think I'm for real. You know, I, I, I don't think that I don't I don't try to be anything that I try. I don't try to be anything that I'm not. And I hope I don't come across that way. But I, I that's my goal is for people to find that you know I, you're talking to the real person. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, this is what you see is what you get. And uh, I, yeah, I try I like to. That. Yeah, that's 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 my one of my goals. Uh, that's in life is to just because you know it's the Polonius Tilaertes. You know, to this above all else, to that to thine own self be true. You can't if you're true to yourself, you cannot be go wrong. You may not be the most successful person in the world, but you can't go wrong. You have to be who you are. Yeah. You know? Oh damn it! I wish I gave that answer now. <laughs> <laughs> That was a good one. That is exactly me as well. I would like people to to know and think of me that I'm my true self. Like, but people do anyway. People tell yeah. me that all the time. They they, you know, they say that like I'm exactly the same person. Like, I'm exactly the same person. Like, I'm consistent with being who I am which must mean that I am being myself at all times. Yeah. Um, so here's a good question. I get this from a lot of people. Uh, like when I ask people what gets you up in the morning, some people have actually told me coffee. <laughs> so, well, that's great. <laughs> but uh, uh, what is your Zen? My Zen is... My Zen is sitting by myself or with other people by the seaside or somewhere where there's a large body of water. So it could be a seaside, a lake, a river, a brook, anything, anything where there's water, but where I'm sitting quietly, where I'm just sitting quietly 
and listening to the the sounds of the water. That's my Zen. So, um, so anyway, I'm going to get to the last of my 10 questions, which is a question I've had just the widest range of answers uh, on this. And uh, people um, can be consistent in some areas, but a lot of people have very different takes on this because it's based on their personal experience. So the, the question is the threshold. And the threshold is uh, a point in your life where you realize that there is no going back. Not only is there no going back, but the door you just came through has been sealed over, bricked up, and uh, painted so you can't even tell there was even a door there. Uh, how did you know when you arrived there? How did it feel to cross it? What was the significance to you and what did you leave behind? What are you glad you left behind? And what do you regret leaving behind? Wow, that question is huge, isn't it? It's massive. Yeah, yeah. That's a massive question. Yes. I think I think the threshold for me is the day that I decided to speak about my experience, about what happened to me um, being sexually abused by my mom's husband when I was five till I was ten. Yes. Having to uh, speak about that, having... Like, not only coming to terms with what what happened, because that's a lifelong process, but deciding to speak about it after being silent for 30 years, that was my threshold. And once I was able to speak about it and write about it, um, there was no going back for me. There was no going back. It almost felt like that a ton of weight had came off my shoulders. Um, this was in 2019. I started speaking my truth about the abuse. And so it's very recent, if you like. But it's when the day that I broke my silence on that was when I knew there was no going back. Because now I speak about it. I'm free to speak about my truth. I speak about it to inspire other people to speak about it, to encourage other people who have been through it to, to write about their experience and share their experience so that we can help other people and we can help each other. Because a lot of people have been through a lot of things, you know. And by speaking about our truths and our experiences, we help other people to speak about this. And um, it's, it's felt like a massive relief to, to be able to speak about this stuff. It's a huge subject. Um, I feel like my whole existence is now like a massive trigger warning because I've created spaces where um, like a workshop where people can speak their truth about abuse. I've created an open mic night where people speak their truth about abuse. Like everything about me right now is about, you know, selling copies of my book so that people can read my truth about abuse and maybe start sharing theirs and having the courage to write about their experience with abuse. Because like you said in earlier on in the, the conversation, one in four women and one in six men are affected by this. And those are huge numbers, you know, when you think about it. So um, what, what do I leave behind? I leave behind years of 
secrecy and blame. You know, I leave behind years of the trauma is still there, but I leave behind years of um, feeling as if it was my fault. You know, I know it's not my fault. I'm nearly 40 years old and I know after all these years, I know for a fact that I was not to blame for what happened to me. And so I leave that behind. I leave behind guilt. Uh, I leave behind fear um, because I am not, I'm not being silenced by anybody, you know. Um, at the beginning of the conversation, I did say to you that I no longer speak to my mum, or should I say she no longer speaks to me because she can't deal with the fact that I'm speaking about this huge issue that was private within our family and is now public, very public. Um, but, yeah. What do I regret leaving behind? What do I regret leaving behind? I don't want to say that I regret not speaking about this earlier because there's so many reasons why I didn't speak about it earlier. You know, life doesn't work like that you know where I grew up in Jamaica they have a saying where they say nothing happens before the time and now is the time so I can't really regret that I can't really regret that there's loads of reasons why I never spoke about it earlier it's been quite a painful journey and I was focused on bringing up my child who's now 18 so now that she is 18 I feel like I can I can just be my authentic self and speak my truth and and the days when the days when I feel emotional or really down or I don't know like like the journey that I've been on since speaking my truth I don't think I would have been able to go through that journey and bring up a young child do you know what I mean? Because you still have to wake up in the morning and look after somebody who's dependent on you. She is yeah. no longer yeah. dependent on me. Yeah. So I've got the time and the space to process and work through all of these, the feelings and emotions and everything that's come with this um, release of speaking my truth. So I would say that is the, that is my threshold. Probably a long way of answering the question, but I think I realised that that is it. It's just been a great conversation. So yeah, you know, it sometimes has, it's, it has. So let's go. Let's go quickly. The turning point in your life was what changed the way you relate to others and the world. Mm, I don't know. Next, <laughs> let me skip that question. <laughs> You bike. <laughs> uh, yep, okay, hobbies, avocations, and pastimes. How about that? Oh, um, hobbies, hobbies. Um, I've I've got a new instrument called a handpan. It's a fairly new instrument that's probably been around for like twenty years or something. Um, it's called a handpan, 
and I love it. I spend time playing it. Um, so that's a hobby. I like going for walks in nature. Um, spending time with my immediate family, my partner and my daughter. Yeah, those are my pastimes and hobbies. That's great. Um, any regrets? Um, no, I don't have any regrets. I, I don't have any regrets because I think that all of the things that we we experience and go through in our lives, like, make us the people we are today, you know? And without those experiences, yeah, I think about that. And I think, no, I don't have any regrets. I used to regret, um, I used to regret dropping out of school and stuff like that. But I, I've reflected on that and I realised that that wasn't my fault. I had lots of issues as a teenager um, as a result of the trauma. So that wasn't my fault. Yeah. So Absolutely. I don't, I don't regret that. So no, I, I don't have regrets. any regrets. Uh, what do others not know about you? Um, I don't know. I think people see me because I've been speaking my truth and stuff like that. I come across very confident and resilient and strong. And I think people don't know that I do have a hard time like I do I'm always smiling and people always think oh why are you always so happy but I I, I don't think people realize I have a hard time sometimes I've yeah or people don't realize that sometimes I will cry for days on end wow and then come back smiling again but because I think the smile makes people think that I don't have any problems, that I'm yeah. just speaking my truth and everything's great. Yep. So uh, the strongest bond forged, personal, professional, social? I don't know. These, these questions, are they the, the selection that I chose, yeah. that I said I was yes. going to be asked? Okay. Did I keep this one in? Oh, wow. Um, strongest bond. The strongest bond that has been forged oh, yeah. has, has been with my daughter, Renee. And I, think the, and I think that's because I've always wanted to have a really good and healthy relationship with my daughter. One that is better and not as toxic as the one that I have with my own mother. So I reckon that's the strongest bond I've forged in my life. Okay, very good. Um, is there anything you do that, that peers all have under their belts? Um, I, I, don't, I don't compare myself to anybody. I look up to people, but I don't think, I don't think 
Yeah. I don't look at other people and think, oh, they've achieved that or they've got that. I want that. I work to my own goals, you know, things like um, like a mortgage. I've always wanted a house and having been homeless in my life, that was one of the things that I always wanted to have a secure roof over my head and own my own home. And it's something that I've been able to achieve. Um, so anything that I've always wanted, it's because I want to do it or I want to achieve that goal. Not because somebody I know has done it that I want to do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I also so, understand some people, you know, like, oh, I wish I could speak French like that guy. You know, or yeah. stuff, uh, stuff like, you know, uh, or a musical instrument or something, uh, or things that other people have gotten that I felt that I was faking it, you know, uh, and then I oh, wish I was really, really substantial in this. And I think uh, some yeah. people, want to be that way i don't know people i think just think i really have to focus on what i need for me you know which is what i think you're saying yeah i have all the things that i need that are not materialistic and i have a lot of value in that um but i i think also what i'm saying is that if there if there is something that other people have got and i and i and it's on my to-do list like because I'm so willing to try things and learn and as I go in my life, I've always, you're never too, it's never too late to learn anything or do anything. So if, if I know that something like learning another language is much harder when you're older, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. So if learning a new language, like a second language, like French or something, was something that I wanted to achieve in my life. I've still got years ahead to learn it. So Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't look at other people and what they have and what they've achieved and and want it because we're all on our own path and our own journey. What's your favorite weather? Oh, summer is my favorite weather. Summer, it has to be summer is my favorite. I love summer because Everyone seems to be smiley in summertime. I hate being cold. So I like when the sun's out. I like I like watching the sunset. I like summer. That's my favorite weather. What do you want to be better at? Hmm. I want to be better. I think I want to be better at networking. I want to be better at finding people who are speaking on the same difficult topics as I am and be able to create larger scale events with them. So I want based on the the topics that, yeah. I want to be able to be better at networking with people so that we can potentially put on a bigger event, like a convention, um, to have this sort of speak your truth mission, you know, where people... 
if people get the courage to speak their truth. But there's not not just me doing it on my on my own, like because it does feel quite lonely sometimes. This journey. Yeah. So, um, so what should everybody know about you? Everyone should know that I am kind, caring, compassionate and genuine. Okay. Um, what is your abiding passion, what you care about most? Right now, I care that I care about I care about creating spaces, safe spaces where people feel they can be creative in the spaces that I create. Um, I, I, that I care about that, that connection. I care about connecting people to be creative in the spaces. And I care about it so much that it's just something that I think about every day and that I am working on and I have created events for that to happen. And, be, and because the Adult Survivors Open Mic um, event and the Write Your Truth workshops are quite new, um, there's like four people that come consistently. So I'd like to grow grow those numbers that's great to make more of an impact that's I think that's awesome now i have this one question and and people uh, some people have utterly floored me um my friend the chinese national told me uh answer to this question because uh everything is singular and unique to each person which i never knew uh what name what do you think of when you think yourself and he told me that everybody is named individually uh, and uh, there's a significance and I did not ever know that and it, it was very interesting but what, what do you say I mean uh, I say so I'm Tim people call me Timmy people call me Timothy Tim uh, but I I'm first thing I think of I think of myself as Tim and I think of me as something uh, maybe a little bit different than other people might think because it's, 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 it's internal. So what is your name? What do you think of when you think of yourself? My name is Andrina. And when I think of myself, I think of resilience and courage in the face of adversity. I think of somebody who is strong and powerful. What is your favorite color and why? Well, right now, my favorite color is green. Me too. It's green because it's quite an earthy color. It's a nature color. It's nice. I like, I like the color green, how it, it complements my skin. I like, I just like it. I like all shades of green. And throughout my life, I've had 
Yeah, it hasn't always been my favorite color. I've had blue was was my favorite color for a really long time. And then I went through a phase of really loving purple, a deep purple color. And now green is my color. I agree. Yeah. These are, these are things that have given me, so I, I wear them around my neck. And I have, this is actually a, a piece of eight. This is sunken card, and it was uh, recovered off a shipwreck uh, about uh, about a thousand yards to my parents when they were alive. And um, this is a, a memento of uh, but my favorite colors are purple and green, but green is something, something very mystical about green. You know, it's, it's a mystical to me. You know, so I, I think that there's something, you know, the philosophies and they, they your, your network, your signal has gone a bit funny. It's breaking up a little bit for me. I'm not sure if it's like that for you. I hear you. You fine. I think maybe we could do maybe one more call, uh, one, one, two, and then we, we can we can we can we can finish. Okay. Um, uh, is there anything you shun? Shun, like things that I don't like. Yeah, things you wouldn't do. Yeah, you like you like I don't want alcohol or like no, nah, I don't I don't play basketball or you know anything anything you 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 may have done before, but you had enough and like no no. I, I, you know, just no. I shun, I shun. I shun loud people. I shun. I shun bullies. You know. I shun bullies. I don't like anyone who bullies anybody else. I shun people who take advantage of other people. Okay. Yeah. We're gonna to get to. I'm sure this is the last question. I'm not gonna go for anymore because we we've spoken a lot. Um, your most treasured possession? Do you know, I thought about this, right? My most treasured possession. And I, I'm going to say my phone. And I know that people wouldn't expect me to say that. But I, I, the reason why I think my most treasured possession is my phone is because of the amount of things I can do on it. I listen to my meditation app. I listen to music on it. I'm able to make notes in it. I write my shopping list in it. I'm able to work from it. Um, and emails. A lot of people say that I'm quite responsive. And the reason why I respond to emails quite quickly is because it's on my phone. So I get a notification when I get an email. Whereas when you know, when I had emails on a laptop, I'd have to log into the laptop and it might be a couple of days before I reply. And so I, w I would say that my phone is my most treasured possession. And that's because it can do so much. I can connect with people. Um, I can run events from my phone. I can organize from my phone. I can do so much from my phone I feel like my phone gives me so much and it's something that I would have if you had asked me this maybe five years ago I probably wouldn't have said my phone I also think my phone is my prized possession because I grew up in the 80s so I I come from a time where I knew what it was like to not have a phone yeah. 
and people about uh, going to gay bars. You had to triangulate, and you had to make you know you had to make phone calls from the phone, and, and in those days you had to be discreet because you didn't know who was listening in on you, and if you went out. The payphones, the lines for payphones were absurd. You'd actually have to wait 20 or 30 people, and everybody would be yelling at the person to finish up. And they'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they'd go back to their phone. And then you'd pretend on this thing. <laughs> and it, it, phones have transformed life since you know they, they first started to become but i remember in the 80s when you didn't have a phone and, and how how uh, crucial and vital it was to be able to effectively communicate on a phone now it's just yeah. you know you don't you don't go anywhere without yeah. has anyone else said a phone because I, I know that probably sounds like such a superficial thing to say but i think i reflecting on what my personal favorite possession is i'd, I'd definitely agree that it's my phone okay that's awesome um, i'm gonna i'm gonna end it now so i'm gonna say um well we've come to the end of our 20 questions and as usual i have to thank you so much andrina and uh hope to uh hope that your book chard uh takes off it uh, sells and keeps going i hope we can help uh promote this in any way possible uh i thank you uh, um, it was a pleasure to meet with you and uh, to talk and uh, uh, see you next time and as the kitties say peace out mm -hmm.